What's it like being a person of color in tech? Yeah, so pers- uh, person of color in tech. So I think that's a very – that question you can ask – 10 different people of color, what's it like being a person of color in tech? And each day they're going to give you a different answer. When you're a minority, underrepresented minority in any place, you're trying to make sure you're not the last. Right? You want to make sure you're, you're doing your part to open the gates. If you're one, you want to make sure you open the gates for at least two behind you. And that's always been um, my way of thinking since high school. there folks my name is kenny vaughn i'm the director of breakline apex and man are we in for a treat today i am here with my sister audrey stewart and i consider her a friend a mentor a sounding board a voice of reason so i'm just so glad we get a chance to share this time she is on the breakline alumni council just out here making moves so i'm just glad we get a chance to share this conversation today audrey first and foremost thank you so much for being here would you mind just introducing yourself, uh, telling our listeners where you're from, where you work, what an average day in life is like for you? We'd just love to start with a brief introduction. Audrey Stewart, she, her pronouns. I work at Google here in New York City. I work in our employee engagement department, which is basically the department at Google that is where diversity, equity, inclusion sits. So some of my projects that I, I rolled out were Google Self-ID program. That's where we really keep track of employees the way they identify outside of just binary uh, gender or just a few race categories. We really try to open that up, as well as the Google Diverse Annual Report. My program managed that and ran that with that. So that's what I do. That's who I am. Tell us a little bit more about your origin story. We want to hear where the roots come from. Oh, man. Yeah, so we'll start background. So I started my career in the Army. I graduated from West Point. I spent roughly about seven and a half years in the Army in air defense artillery. Did several different deployments around the world and finished after company command. That last field, or company grade officer level where you're in charge of a lot of, I was in charge of 119 people. That's, that's where I ended it. And at that time, I felt like that was as much as I wanted to do in the military, or at least in the Army at that time. As I started to look around, I started reaching out to people to ask them, like, hey, what is life after the Army? What are you doing? What do you suggest? But fortunately, I, I had a great group of peers, and they pointed me towards business school. So I applied. Actually, it took me a couple of two different years to apply. So the first year, I just went at it blind, didn't really form my essays, didn't really have the right score I needed on the GMAT. So it took me two years, but eventually I, I ended up Columbia Business School here in New York. And when I came, I wanted to either be in equities research, so think about like when people just talk about stocks online or on on the news or they talk about some type of financial instrument. I either wanted to do that or I wanted to be in consultant management consulting. Uh, When I got here, I realized probably management consulting was more aligned with my background and and I really enjoyed uh, the aspect or at the time, at least I thought I would enjoy the aspect of traveling every week. So fortunately for me, I was able to land a job at Deloitte Consulting and traveled quite a bit. And it gets cold after after you make that first elite tier status. You realize you spend a lot of time on planes, not a lot of time in your apartment or in your own bed. 
in the type of consulting I did was human capital consulting. So that was a little different. Human capital consulting is basically HR consulting on one aspect, whether that's transformation, let's say they're trying to go from one system to another, or they need to relook their operating model. It's everything to do with HR and, and working with people. So that was my, my first real exposure to HR. I was doing something called HR transformation, and that's where we look at the tech side of HR. So besides understanding what HR does, how does HR actually work as a business function, we are also working on the tech side. So you can see this is now starting to like tech, HR, management from the Army. So I starting to come together the picture, and that's when I said, I, I want to go on the client side, or in, the, in consulting, what we call the client side. I want to make decisions. I want to have impact at that level, not just advising on those decisions. And I applied to Google. Took me a few rounds. Took me a few different roles and different jobs. Uh, different job families more or less but eventually I found my, my place at, at Google you know I got a follow-up question I got to unpack a little bit more for our listeners I would love to hear a little bit more about your company command I, as a fellow veteran I understand wholeheartedly what that means for our listeners who might not have served in the military or who are unfamiliar with military service can you share a little bit about your company command experience? Are there any memories that stick out? Anything that you're like tremendously proud of that you're you're glad you're able to be a part of? Yeah, so company command. So, so you know, talking a little bit about that, going a little deeper, it is, there's so many things that are going on. When I talk to people and they, they say, hey, how are you possibly managing a hundred and something people? Because that, that's unheard of unless you're a very senior person. In hold on, hold on. So you said you, you was managing over a hundred plus people. That's what you're telling me? Yes, yes. Okay, that's the thing. I'm just saying. It's, yes. a, it's a team. It's a team well, effort. I, well, <laughs> I, I know. I know for the listeners, that's a, we got to break this stuff down, man. This is a big deal, okay? 100, 100 plus people, even if you got some folks that's helping you out at the end of the day, that's a big deal. It is. It is a, it's a team. It's a team effort. It's a family effort. And, and it's like when I look back on it, my, my senior VP at Google manages roughly 100 people. So I always realize it puts in perspective there sometimes. When I look back, besides having the confidence and just being able to, the confidence of the soldiers for one, their families, because a lot of people don't realize when you're a company commander, you're also in charge of their family. So if there's something wrong at home, it's your problem at work as well. So you, you have to be very cognizant of just so many different aspects that we take for granted, but I definitely think it, it rounds out a young adult or matures them really fast. But if I had to think of the one thing I'm super proud of, besides all the many things we did, great things, it was this haunted house that we did at out at Fort oh, Lewis, uh -oh, Washington. Uh -oh, uh -oh. I feel like and it's about to go. It was just like an idea I had. I was like, all right, we're about to go on deployment. At the time, we were like, well, coming, we were deployed one year, back on home station one year, deployed one year. It was like back and forth. And so I wanted to do this haunted house for the families, for the kids. And it wasn't like, like my goal initially, or actually the goal the entire time wasn't just, oh, this little trick or treat type of haunted house. No, I wanted to scare that age group, like that 10 to 13 year old. That, that's like the group I, I just want, cause you know, they're just, they think they're adults already. That's the age that they're actually like, they can think and they're like, this is corny. So I really wanted to scare that 
he trying to scare the bejeebies out of people. Yes, yes, (laughs) yeah. Like that is what that that was the goal. I had the entire like we were coming. It was like a very coming together moment for my company at the time because we had some people where I was like, hey, I think you would make an excellent scary clown for this haunted house. And then some people were like, hey, Cam Stewart, I can't be an actor, but maybe you need something else. I was like, hey, yeah, you're a carpenter. I need you to build this. We just had everybody come together. And then some people were like, look, I can't do, I can't build anything. I don't have any money. I was like, how many friends do you have on post? They're like, oh, I know a lot of people. Well, tell them about this haunted house. So by the end of like, the time, like within seven weeks, we went from an idea to a legit haunted house that rivaled the professional haunted houses in the in that (laughs) Tacoma Washington area and for one night like they came in this like we had a line at the end of the day that the 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 longest line was at any given time or the longest the line was at its peak was about 170 people who had to go through this haunted house it would take you about four or five minutes to get through it but that to me was just I was super proud of that moment just because it was an idea. The company came together. We made it happen. I think we had five kids cry. I was like enjoying it just because I was like, got them. That's what I wanted to do. That was an amazing event. And I've talked to a few of my soldiers just maybe a year or two ago, and they try to take that same thing somewhere else. And they, they always just remembered the magic that we had in Delta Company. So... But I think what's so cool about that, too, is I think it highlights how personal of a business the military is. It's it's not just the training. It's not just the deployments. It's not just making sure that people are ready for combat. It's ensuring that people are having a good time, that families feel included, that you can take pride in putting something together and having a great time as a unit. So I think it's really cool out of all the stories you could have chosen, you chose that one in particular because I think it says a lot about your leadership and the type of culture and climate that you were creating in in your units. pulse of diversity in tech right now from your perspective. I know you said you were the program lead for the Google Diversity Report. What's it like being a person of color in tech and why was it so important for you to be involved in this initiative of Breakline? Yeah, so uh, person of color in tech. So I think that's a very, that question you can ask 10 different people of color what's it like being a person of color in tech and each day they're going to give you a different answer each of them every day is different it's it's quite notorious the tech industry is notorious of not being the most diverse place that's all corporate america by the way like i think the tech industry just has this culture of trying to be transparent and by being transparent they like try to sidestep the actual issue, but it's the truth. And I think for me, I'm on the business side, right? I think if you're on the technical side, you're an engineer, it's much more, it's much different experience. Where I work, there's, there's frustration mixed in with moments of jubilation. And what I mean by that is you are so excited 
to see so many people like to be around so many successful people of color, people who aren't a person of color. And, and it just makes you feel great to see the strides we're making. When I see uh, a director make VP who is uh, a woman of color, like that's huge. And you're so um, excited and you feel privileged to, to be in an organization that that would promote people who look like you, who come from the same background as you, who you would say is a mentor to you in, in multiple ways. But then you, it, it's frustration because you realize, why is that such a moment of jubilation? Why, why can't I have that more? And, and it starts to hit you. There's just so much work to be done. So it's this moment of jubilation. Every single time there's something good that happens, but it's really like an iceberg of jubilation. Like on the surface, it's like, oh, that's really great. But then you get down in, into the weeds of it, and you realize there's so many issues. And so I think it's constantly that, that mixture of emotion of you're happy where you're at. You're happy to see things happening. You're happy to see things push forward. But then there's always something that, that reminds you of the work that needs to be done and how far people still have to go on Google. We were just recently in the news for some very, which I call tragic, it just was unfortunate events. If not, that just bad leadership, in my opinion, that happened. And yeah, I just think it's always this mixture of emotions to be a person of color. So that's, that's that question. I don't know if I answered that one. No, it was spot on. And the only follow-up that I have to what you said is, what was it? it that drew you to want to be involved in this space some people will navigate these spaces and say i understand there's issues and challenges out there it's going to work itself out eventually so on and so forth but i feel like you're really in the trenches i feel like you're on the front line not only with what you're doing at google but you also stepped up to the plate and we're one of the vo most vocal members of our alumni community to say, hey, this break line Apex is something that's important. What was it that drew you into that space? Where did that come from? Yeah, I, I think when you're a person of color, you're always trying to, when you're a minority, let me say it like that. When you're a minority, underrepresented minority in any place, you're trying to make sure you're not the last. Right? You want to make sure you're doing your part to open the gates. If you're one, you want to make sure you open the gates for at least two behind you. And that's always been um, my way of thinking since high school, since West Point. Right? I said I was respect officer at West Point. So you're always trying to do that. With Breakline Apex, you, you, you also have, let me back up for a second. In that work, you're only going to be successful with the team and that team has to include accomplices that are helping you bring other people along so at breakline apex that's what i saw i saw hey here is breakline a group that really has cracked the code with veterans in tech like being able to not only identify high uh, achieving very qualifiable veterans and finding them places in tech a very a, a notoriously hard industry to crack into but they're also a group that's hey we, what can we do outside of just the veteran population that's awesome you got the energy right that's huge to have that energy but you have to be very careful because sometimes that energy becomes something like a savior complex or it becomes something else in which you're starting to you create another system or you end up creating another hurdle outside of the what you intended it to be and it's not malicious per se but a lot of times you see these happen you, you see this energy just like morph in the wrong direction so Obviously, it's important to always make, like I said, make sure you're not the last. So that, that's why I was like, good job. But it was really important 
that Breakline Apex did it right, or at least learned from the mistakes of so many other organizations and people who had really good intentions to really just learn from that and put push the ball a little bit forward. Make more good by doing something good than making more bad by trying to do something good, if that makes sense. And I think what's so cool about what you just shared was almost every person that I know who would be considered an underrepresented or underselected minority very much has that same mindset where if you do not want to be the last you it's literally building as you climb and that's what's so inspiring for me as as I try to dedicate my life to this work is knowing that we're planting seeds right now and even if those seeds don't blossom for four five ten years from now five ten years from now you're going to be a VP in the running for VP at these places. And I always look at these CEOs of the Fortune 500 companies because that's the one that, that is killing me. And we just got our fourth African-American CEO of a Fortune 500 company. We, we were at three for a while. We got number four. But that's the type of stuff where I feel like we got to play the long game with this thing. And I think, to your point, it only happens when there's no hero ball where we get a concerted effort from a wide range and a wide span of individuals who are like laser focused on getting after it. So I appreciate that. And I think anyone who's listening is going to be able to resonate with that wholeheartedly. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. Now, you know, we got to have a little bit of fun with this last year section. We got to let our let our collar down on this last one, our proverbial collar. Would you mind reminding our listeners where you said you were from originally? Houston, Texas. Okay, so we got H-Town in the building. We out there with the Beyonce's of the world. We out there with the chopped and screwed. We out there, so we know a little something about the... We gonna talk, can we talk about the culture? Can we talk about the culture for a minute? Oh, we can. Okay, we can okay. So if we can do that. So, right. so Houston black culture, it's a little different. It's a little distinct, right? Because we're still in Texas. Most mm-hmm, of our mm-hmm, descendants, mm-hmm. right? Let's go back. We can, a lot of us can trace things back to Juneteenth. Like a lot of us can trace things mm. way back there. So we have a certain type of pride about ourselves. And people say I have a twang. But okay. uh, you have to realize that's who we are. We come from rural people. Uh, we come from farmers, agriculture. You talk about uh, Beyonce, that's their war. But true black Texas culture, Acres home. When you okay. talk about that, like, you know, we have to get, you know, I have to sometimes show who I am. But that's where, I, that's where my people Listen, are. Don't get it twisted now. Don't get it twisted. <laughs> you know, you know, look that up. <laughs> but uh, so I, I would just say right now, I think there is definitely a lot of recognition that's going on in the black outside the black community because black people we always are going to recognize each other to show that we're doing a good job showing that hey you are walking forward not just for you but for the community we're always going to show that i think right now when i look at just the community in general we're at a high we're at a high point but at the same time there's this anxiousness right because this ain't the first time we've been at a high point This isn't the first time that people have went up and marching for many injustices that have happened. This isn't the first time that people, the term HBCU is in the news. Mm -hmm. And I think there's this cautious optimism that leads to that. That's also anxiousness about what happens when, when the spotlight's not on that. What happens when the other person who is being 
just done wrong by the police or just to be very honest here being shot by the police unarmed right it's almost tiring it's what's going what happens the next time and um and so i i feel that i think other people feel that but i think that's so that's why it's so important that we have to just continue to move just move that ball a little bit forward move that ball when you know this next generation i say that next generation they're not like like us we're gonna organize we're gonna go out and vote the next that other generation they just skip school because of gun violence they just they really do change systems and i'm really excited for the see the change that they're gonna do um but at the same time there is gonna be like this what happens when we call it break line apex but what happens when it's not we're not there what happens when we start talking about climate change that's a serious thing don't want to i don't want to i don't want to say but for some reason we can only talk about one thing at the table at the same time (laughs) so at one time i think i'm I'm here for every black voice every brown voice that is speaking up right now that is getting a chance to speak but i just want us to know as a community like we're gonna have to be there too and and raise up each other's voices when when some of these people aren't gonna have us at the table we always have to have our own table sometimes and i say great to be seen and heard in quotation marks because we're only being seen and heard in a certain light, but at least we're being seen and heard. But as I tell everyone, this is a long, this is a long marathon that I don't know if it's even a marathon. This is just a long race, a long journey, a long path. And uh, we got to be there for each other when that spotlight's not on. And I, and I think the community's going to be there, has always done that. Do you mind if we do a lightning round before we partake? Right. Any, anything. Any. Okay. Okay. Because we up here, and, and I want to preface this because, as we mentioned earlier, black folk, we're not a monolithic people. We have our own interests. We got our own desires and wants and things. We're very unique, multifaceted. However, comma... I do know that there are some experiences that almost every black person that I know can resonate with. One of which is the family barbecue. Okay. You know a little something about the family barbecue? Oh, man. My, my family can do some stuff with some salt and pepper that no, no that I've never seen a restaurant do with just salt and pepper on some meat. Like, yeah, I know a little bit about barbecue. You from Houston, Texas. I, I figured oh. you might know a little something about it, but I just had to verify before I started asking these your questions. Hey, anytime. Let's, let's go. Let's go. Okay. All right. What's your favorite dish at the family barbecue? You know, there's no actual family barbecue unless you have some ribs in my opinion like i'm not a mm. barbecue chicken type of person everybody talks about potato salad but sometimes people mess that one up but i'm talking like some barbecue ribs to me that defines it to, to me i'm not like not a beef rib type person not a barbecue chicken type if it's a homemade link of course that also defines it i'm not talking about a store-bought like a store-bought <laughs> like somebody comes with us what is it like not a jimmy dean's like old homestead or some type of link you're like what is this so i think that to me but ribs that's not no chop brisket or i like ribs to me that's when i see that's a staple that's a staple that that's it that defines it that that's right there okay we're at a barbecue now okay 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 Spades or dominoes? Uh, oh, dominoes. Prince or MJ? Prince. Okay. I, I got a feeling about this next one. Beyonce or Rihanna? Oh, you know, oh, I had a check. You know, I'm from Houston, but I'm going to go with Rihanna on this one. Hey, hey, Houston <laughs> ain't going to disown you. We ain't going to put you on blast. Okay. Teddy Riley or Babyface? Babyface. 
Oh man, okay, 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 okay. We we out here talking about some things. I got one last question for you. <laughs> one last question. As you think about the inspirational and aspirational members of the African American community, who is that one figure that has inspired you in your lifetime? It can be someone that you'd hope folks would take time to learn a little bit more about. Benjamin Banneker. Okay. Go okay. and put us on game. I'm a big watch aficionado. I, I think watches are keeping time if you think about how important that is. Not like one of these smart watches that has a computer, but like actual just time. It's a huge thing. So Benjamin uh, Banneker is or was probably the first black watchmaker in the United States back in the 1700s. And he did quite a bit for the community, lobbying behind the scenes. To, like, and, and I'm, when I say lobbying behind the scenes, I'm talking about talking to Thomas Jefferson lobbying behind the scenes. Yeah, no, ex- exactly. He's a big time. Back in the day, he was obviously he was in the North, and he just did qu- so much stuff that setting the groundwork for so many things in our Declaration of Independence. Or people like there are still problems with the deck, like. You know, the Declaration of the Constitution, don't get me wrong. But he was able to influence in a way, to, to talk to people in a way because of his position in society, because of just the many things he could he was good at. And just for anyone to know, like a, a watch back in that time, it's not like a watch today where you have a battery, like a quartz watch. We're talking mechanical watches that you wind up that are then keeping time. And I don't think people like quite understand how important that is. Like you... When you're trying to keep time, your watch is maybe besides your car, the one thing that you do not want to just break on you at any given time. So for someone to be a watchmaker at this time is how we would view someone who is like a brain surgeon. To understand the physics, the mathematics, the beauty in a watch, it takes multiple skill sets to do that. And then for at the time I'm speaking of, for a black man to be a watchmaker and a respected watchmaker at that, I, I truly, like, I'm waiting for the movie to come out <laughs> about the man because I think he kind of set the precedent for black excellence early on, or at least was part of that evolution of black excellence, to say the least. Tell you how I feel If you're talking, I'ma tell you it's real Life ain't always gonna catch you standing still So that's someone, just the fact that he was smart, the fact that he had to work with many different accomplices to get what he, to have the influence he needed, and he was behind the scenes. It's just somebody I, I reflect on and like to try to put the same, the same style to how I advocate. So... On the slight chance that Michael B. Jordan, you out there listening to the Breakline Arena, brother, we need you to step up to the mantle because this Benjamin Banneker story needs to happen. So you got the request. You heard it here first. We need to bring this story to life, brother. We need to bring it to life. We appreciate you. All right. Thank you. Ken. Thank you so much. Music from today's episode was provided by Gabby Along, courtesy of Valerie Kingdom Records. Featured songs included Gift, Stuck in My Head Remix, and Rose. 
We are so proud to also note that Gabby is a member of our Breakline family. Her music can be found on iTunes, Spotify, as well as other streaming platforms. We'd love if you checked it out, and we know she would too. Well, folks, that's all we've got for today. This is Kenny Vaughn, your director of Breakline Apex, signing out from the Breakline HQ. We'll see you on the high ground. Much better in a glass anyway.